is Camilla, and you're listening to the Cat's Whisker, a time machine for all those who love rock and roll and want to know everything about it. People, stories, and the music that changed the world. In a few words, it doesn't matter whether you've lived through those years or, just like me, you've always wondered what it was like. I have loads of stories to tell and great music to play. So, let's roll! Hi everyone and welcome back to the Cat's Whisker. I am Camilla and as promised, here's your second part of the Let's Line Up episodes. This is going to be about the other two instruments. Because if you remember, a few episodes ago, I investigated the origins of PA systems and electric guitars. It only seems fair now to talk about the other two important components of a rock and roll band, the rhythm section, made of bass and drums. Electric bass guitars are probably the coolest instrument in rock and roll. Sorry guitars, but I feel like basses need to be in the spotlight for once. They're just such a versatile instrument that can either be the backbone of many songs or able to fly solo. I noticed over the years that most people that are not really into music instruments can't really recognize the bass line in songs, but I assure you, if you've ever struggled with this, even if you can't pick it out, you'd notice when it's not there. But how did everything start? Obviously, the story of the bass guitar starts with the more classical but still very present in rock and roll, double bass or upright bass. Just like its later electric version, the double bass is the lowest pitch stringed instrument. It was born in the 1500s to be a bass version of the violin and it's still used a lot today. And to actually have an instrument that wasn't as big, more manageable, louder, but still had the same tuning, the electric bass was invented. A first attempt was made by the famous Gibson in the 1910s, and it was a massive instrument that was a mixture between a mandolin and a bass, called mando bass. They stopped producing them in 1930, deciding to focus on the other needs of the market. The first lucky production of an actual bass guitar started in the 1930s. The same decade, electric guitars were invented. A man in Seattle named Paul Tutmark was the first to actually produce effectively a solid body electric bass guitar. It was called AudioVox 736, bass fiddle. It was sold with an amplifier and was made in 1935. It was a very cool and modern instrument that in a way looked more like a guitar than the first electric guitar did. Tutmark decided to add frets to the instrument making it easier to play. Only around 100 bases were made from the initial prototype designed by Tutmark, but that definitely marked the start of the instrument that became the soul of rock and roll and today's music. It obviously wasn't perfect. The 736 only had the one pickup, the lead was plugged in from the top of the main body of the guitar, but most importantly, it was a 30 and a half inch scale bass which means that it wasn't full scale. Around the same years, Rickenbacker had produced an electric bass viola sold with an amplifier. Everyone was trying to find a solution, essentially, but they would have to wait a little longer for the answer. The problem was solved 15 years later by Fender. 
Leah Fender and George Fullerton, in fact, would patent their Fender Precision Bass in 1951, making it the first full-scale electric bass ever. It still had the one pickup until 1957, and the design resembled a lot the one of their famous electric guitars. Their first Telecasters in the early models, and then they got more similar to the Stratocaster. Unfortunately, most people like my mother can't really tell the difference between a guitar and a bass guitar, but besides the practicality of it all, bass guitars were built very similar to uh, electric guitars in order to be appealing for guitarists too. Well, come on, let's be honest, how many bass guitarists out there had first had a go at a guitar. Most of them. I mean, think of Paul McCartney. Between the first adopters of the Fender Precision Bass was Monk Montgomery. After the success of Fender's new bass, other companies decided to give their contribution to the market. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please sit down because I might shock you. It was 1953 when Gibson, Fender's legendary competitor, had to counterattack and produce the first violin bass. Yes, it wasn't Hofner who produced the first violin bass, but Gibson. The model was called EB1. It was a short scale, but it was sold with an extendable pin to even play it in the upright position. The company decided not to follow up that type of model and opted for the EB2 and the EB0, more similar to the guitars they were already producing. The EB0, for example, is literally a bass SG. In my heart, though, is the German company Hofner that produced the first ever full-scale violin bass, the sensational 500-1 model that will give the company incredible prestige when Paul McCartney will use it as his signature bass. I might be a little biased here because for my last birthday just a couple of months ago, Leah and my boyfriend got me a beautiful Hofner violin, but I find the history of Hofner deeply fascinating. It all started in 1887 making them one of the oldest manufacturers. From a factory in the small town of Schönbach in Germany to a worldwide renowned company. It was a family business made up of a father and his two sons and used to sell traditional strings instruments internationally at the beginning of the 1900s. As they were becoming more popular, they decided to switch to guitars in the 1930s. And then, boom! World War II, Germany became enormously isolated and they had to stop producing guitars and reinvent themselves. And that's when they started selling crates or soles for boots. And that's not even the worst part. With all the turmoil Europe's borders had been through, Hofner, a traditionally German company, ended up being in Czechoslovakia. And since all the companies had to be nationalized and the German-speaking people that suddenly found themselves in another country had to be expropriated of their assets from one day to the other, the company was taken away from the family and given to a state administrator. The situation obviously wasn't ideal, to say the least. So what happens next? The family asked for permission to move to West Germany, where they had to set up their business basically from scratch. They managed to create a little town for all the workers to move to, and the operation started again in 1950. They regained their reputation really fast, and when rock and roll became popular, they saw their sales quintuplicate. 
They were selling so quick that they had to find another way to paint the guitars that took less time, because they couldn't keep up with the request otherwise. When they probably couldn't expect anything better, in 1961, a young man from Liverpool walks into a music shop in Hamburg and buys a Hofner violin bass. A model that he would keep playing for 60 years and is still one of the most recognizable and iconic instruments in the whole world. And talking about famous bass guitars, Paul McCartney also used a Rickenbacker 4001. They were first produced in 1957 and the dream of many, many musicians. And I say dream because for many of us it will always remain a dream because unfortunately Rickenbacker guitars are famously expensive. They weren't that expensive back in the day when they first were produced, but in the last 30 years Rickenbacker decided to produce less instruments but made with a higher quality that became increasingly desirable because of their price and reputation. And that's why now they cost so much. And so much so that if you type Rickenbacker on Google, one of the first researches that pop up are why are Rickenbackers so expensive? I literally imagine musicians in the middle of the night tortured about this thought. So I'm going to tell you what I found in this very informative article by William Butterworth for The Cold Wire. If you have been wondering, just like me, why you can't afford a Rickenbacker, it is because it is essentially considered a luxury guitar. And what does this mean? Rickenbacker guitars are handcrafted and made in America, except for the CTS potentiometer, which is what gives the guitar a specific tone, made exclusively for Rickenbacker in their Taiwan factory. This guarantees a very specific sound that no other guitar can make. In fact, the company in its own right considers this particular what makes their guitars essentially priceless. Rickenbackers also have a stereo input, which means that one instrument can be connected to two different amps and give musicians unlimited freedom and creativity. During the early age of rock and roll, other companies decided to start producing basses like K, Yamaha, Burns and Dan Electro. That by the way has been the first to produce a bass with more than four strings, the UB2 in 1956. The project didn't have a long life though, in fact it is Fender again that mass produced the first five string bass nearly 10 years later. In the meantime, the big giants Fender and Gibson continue to produce new models and the bass guitar becomes a staple of the rock and roll instruments. As the years go by, more versions of this iconic instrument proliferate. As basses get more strings, they also seem to lose their frets. The Rolling Stones bassist Bill Wyman, in fact, decided to get rid of the frets on his bass in 1961. It would have to wait until the mid-60s though to see the Ampeg AUB1, the first commercialized fretless bass. They are used to achieve a more varied tone and slide easily between notes. But now let's talk about the other components of the rhythm section, the drums. Probably one of the oldest instruments in the world. If we look into stroke ideophones, so basically instruments that create sound through vibration and are either used with sticks or hands, the oldest ones that were found were made from mammoth bones and they date back to 70,000 years ago. Iconography suggests that percussion instruments were used by ancient Egyptians, Romans, Greeks and even in Mesopotamia. Literally 
where there was people, there was music. And well, not only people, scientists found out that macaque monkeys drum by shaking branches and stomping on logs as a form of non-vocal communication. It is done to establish a hierarchy. The louder you can drum, the more powerful you are. The interesting fact about macaques is that they use other objects to drum on a surface, just like humans with drumsticks. Gorillas, on the other hand, beat their chests and clap their hands, as we know, and chimpanzees drum on trees. But let's go back to humans. In China, for example, someone discovered percussion instruments made of alligator skin and they trace back to the 5,500 before Christ. Obviously, what they were using didn't really look much like our modern drum kits, but unlike all the other instruments we talked about here in this podcast, the drums are probably the ones that changed the least over their millennia. Drums are even mentioned in one of the oldest religious texts in the world and linked to Hinduism, the Rig Veda, written between the 1500 and 1000 before Christ. Specifically, in one of the verses, there's a mention of war drums. This actually reveals something really interesting about the habits of people in the past. Music was primarily used in battles or religious ceremonies. But not only. In some countries, especially in Sri Lanka and West Africa, drums were used as means of communication over large distances. Shaped like an hourglass with two drum heads, this specific type of drums are called talking drums, and their pitch and tone can be regulated very specifically to resemble the sound of the human voice. They were first developed over 2,500 years ago. Still in Africa and in Burundi specifically, a unique type of drums called karienda is the symbol of the Mwami, the king, who has a semi-divine status. The Mwami was the only person able to interpret the beats of the karienda and translate them into rules for his kingdom. The karienda was even on their flag until 1966. Moving on to Asia and Europe, people usually play the frame drum, a very common instrument for religious and spiritual ceremonies, and we can now consider them as an ancient form of snare drums and toms. And when it comes to percussion, I'm talking about the symbols as well. Examples of symbols can be found in reliefs, paintings, even in the Bible. And archaeologists have found some existing specimen from ancient Greece. In medieval times, probably in France, the tabor was invented, which is a portable snare drum that we still use today in marching bands. Kettle drums then were found not only in Europe, but in earlier ages in Egypt, Turkey and the Ottoman Empire. And they would lead basically to the bass drum. But let's travel in time a little bit and get to 1865. The African-American communities present in the US were finally free and this also meant that they could give their precious contribution to music. Many of them had already brought their instruments to the States during the slave trade, but now that they were finally free citizens, many of them actually decided to become musicians. Since the traditional percussionists worked with marching bands, orchestra, vaudeville or theatre shows, and in that context those instruments, the cymbals, the snares or the bass drums were each prerogative of a single musician, someone one day woke up and said, wouldn't it be interesting if one person could play them all together? 
At the beginning of the 1900s, then, the idea of double drumming was developed. Whilst in the past drums had to be played mainly by different people, double drumming made it possible for one person to use both the snare drum and the bass drum at the same time, using drumsticks. Most times that was achieved by putting the snare drum on a support, like a chair, right next to the bass drum. That way, drum heads could be played together. But it wasn't really that easy, though. And comfortable. And guess who thought so too? A man named William F. Ludwig, who in 1909 introduced a new way to play the bass drum, inventing a comfortable foot pedal that was added straight away to the design of the new drums. The five-piece drum kit as we know it today was starting to shape up and it appeared for the first time around the 20s in New Orleans and served both parades and the blooming jazz scene. As the years went by, new genres such as Dixieland, jazz, swing and rock and roll and, well, all that followed, made drum kits evolve in different variations, adding bits and making everything more technological. But if you ask me, there's nothing like the original. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you haven't listened to the first part of it, it's, I think, between my first episodes. So make sure you listen to that one too. And why not to my other episodes? I've got tons of them. And if you're still not annoyed yet by the sound of my voice, you can follow me on social media. I'm on TikTok at the Cat's Whisker and on Instagram at the Cat's Whisker Podcast. I'm going to see you next week with a brand new episode. Ciao!